Well, let's turn together in our Bibles to First Samuel, sorry, Second Samuel chapter 7. This is a kind of rerun. We started this last time. If you're a visitor, you weren't here, you didn't miss anything. We started this great section. The title for last week's sermon, which was meant to cover the entire bit from verse 18 to, 30, to 29, was Standing on the Promises. We've started the first part of it, and so we've come back to it today, and I couldn't come up with a better title than Still Standing on the Promises. And if we don't get through it today, then we'll come back next time and we'll have Still Still Standing on the Promises. At least we're not standing still on the promises. I guess, I guess that, would have been, that would have been worse. <clears throat> you know, there are some conversations that are imprinted on your mind and memory. For whatever reason, maybe it was those conversations that sealed the deal in terms of a relationship that you were in. Promises of unending love and affection were exchanged and... Uh, You've never forgotten that. You've never, ever forgotten those moments. Well, King David had a similar experience because he had a conversation with God. We're listening to his side of the conversation. God initiates, as always he does, in speaking to us. And now we're looking at David's response to God. What we have in the first part of chapter 7 is, in fact, the longest, the longest speech that God makes to anybody outside of Moses. So the, the longest in the Bible uh, up to this point has been his speech to Moses when he was giving him the law. But this is the second longest. This is the longest since that in which he talks to David. Quite a crucial experience. It's crucial in terms of the unfolding story of the Bible. God promised David that he would be a forever friend. He offered him Everlasting chesed is the Hebrew word, covenant loyalty, steadfast love to David. He said that that steadfast love would never, ever end, no matter what happened, no matter if his children and his children's children disobeyed, God would discipline them, he would chastise them, but he would never forget his promise to David. It was a forever promise. And when eventually, when eventually, after 400 years, because the promise of a dynasty that would last a long time lasted over four centuries, when eventually that dynasty came to an end, the exile, in the 6th century BC, when uh, having destroyed the northern kingdom of, uh, of Israel, the southern kingdom of Judah, the family of David, fell before the Babylonians and the last ever king in David's line reigned and fell in Jerusalem. There were those who thought perhaps the promise of God, while it lasted a long time, had failed altogether. But the prophets came along and they said no. They said it's as if the great tree of David has been felled by the judgment of God because of the disobedience of his children, but but don't let the fact that it has been felled and all you see is a stump of the great tree of David left. Don't think for one moment that God has abandoned his promises. They said, do you know that a branch would spring out of the stump of Jesse, David's father? God would remember his promise to my servant David as he called him. 
In the great book of Isaiah, you find this. Isaiah talks about a son being born, a child being given with divine names who will come from David's line, who will sit on David's throne, whose government will not end. It will go on forever, eternally. Later on in the chapter, in Isaiah, he's referred to this son who's coming, this king who's arriving as the servant, echoing the language that God uses about David, my servant, David. God is not going to forget. And ultimately, when those promises are fulfilled and Jesus comes onto the scene, he comes as the son of David as well as the son of God. He comes ultimately in fulfillment of this covenant promise to David here as the son of God, the heir to David's throne and the rightful king. But not only did Jesus come in fulfillment of the promises to David, the promises to David were based on earlier promises. Going right back in the Bible to to Abraham, the father of the faithful. It was Abraham who had spoken about God or spoken to God in Genesis 15 when, when they were establishing a relationship, a covenantal relationship. It was, De- it was Abraham who had called God Sovereign Lord. And that's precisely the same language that David uses here when he says Sovereign Lord or Lord God. He uses it seven times in this section, echoing the language of Abraham. When God had come to Abraham, he had promised Abraham to make his name great, just as he promised to make David's name great. When he promised Abraham a people, he also promised a land, a place of rest, a place of security, just as now he comes to David and promises a place of rest and security. In other words, the promises to David seem to echo the promises made originally back at the beginning of the story to Abraham. God is going to fulfill those promises to Abraham through the line of David. It's as if, it's as if the telescope of history is being, is being turned and sharpened and the focus is being adjusted until more and more of what is to come is coming into focus, is becoming clearer. I mean, when God said to Adam and Eve outside the Garden of Eden that that he was going to do something about the fall, he said, it would be through a male child, a son of a woman. Later on in Genesis, he comes to Abraham, calls Abraham, and he promises Abraham, one of your offspring, one of your children, will be the means of bringing blessing to the whole world. In him, all the families of the earth will be blessed. And how is it going to be fulfilled? To one of David's sons, Jacob, it's given to say it's going to be fulfilled through through the line of Judah, one of his twelve children. And then in in Moses' time, God is going to use the people of Israel, of all the nations in the world, God is going to use them to bring light, light and truth and revelation to the the nations, to the Gentiles, to the non-Jewish people. But now you've come to this climatic moment. This is, this is it. In terms of the unfolding story in the Old Testament, it kind of reaches David and then it stops there. God is going to bless the world through David's line. And from this point on, things begin to change. Even the language that's used. This phrase, the Son of God, 
This idea of being adopted by the great king of the universe, being adopted into his family and being announced as a son of God, up to this point, that has only ever been used corporately. It was used of Israel. So God sends Moses to Pharaoh and says, when you go to Pharaoh, I want you to say this to him, Israel is my son, let him go, let my people go. So it's been a corporate description. Out of Egypt I called my son, says God, meaning the nation. But now for the first time the phrase the son of God is applying not to the nation as a whole, but to one person within the nation who will answer for the nation, who will be a representative of the nation, who will rule over the nation, who will be the nation's champion, the king. He is called the son of God. The nation, the corporate people of God, are going to be represented by one individual. His actions will be crucial for good or ill for the nation. What he does, whether he obeys or disobeys, will have implications for the people of God. He, he's like a new Adam, King Adam, who, whose actions and decisions affected the entire human race. So this new king, King David, will be answerable for the people of God. He will act on their behalf as their representative, as a new uh, Adam and a new Israel. Now you can see this illustrated in the subsequent history of Israel. Solomon, for example, is a great king. And God uh, enables Solomon to build a temple and so on. But Solomon goes after other gods. And God says to Solomon, I'm going to tear the kingdom. I'm going to tear it in two. And that's what happens. The kingdom is divided into two. Ten tribes to the north, two to the south. Judah in the south, Israel in the north. Torn apart because of Solomon's idolatry. A little later on, Ahab, one of the kings, does a very unjust business deal over somebody's vineyard called Naboth. Uh, Naboth and uh, God says there should be judgment coming, but Ahab is repentant. He breaks his heart, he's repentant, and God says judgment will come, but it won't come in your day because of your repentance. And so God holds back judgment because of Ahab's repentance. And later still, when little Judah to the south, the southern Israelite kingdom, is sent into exile in Babylon. The reason it's sent into exile in Babylon is not what the people did, not how the people behaved, not what the people were responsible for, but because of King Manasseh, who had sinned against the Lord. In other words, what we have with David is a major shift in the storyline of the Bible. And it's this. How goes the king goes the people. How goes the king goes the people. From now on the son of God, the king of Israel, the servant of the Lord is going to be crucial to the unfolding of God's purposes for his people. So when the Lord Jesus Christ comes onto the scene and you remember in his public inauguration God from heaven, the great king, recognizes who he is and speaks. You remember from the heavens, God speaks. This is my beloved son with whom I'm well pleased. He's quoting from one of David's psalms, Psalm 2. He's quoting from Isaiah the prophet. 
talking about the servant, like David, he brings them both together and he says, My servant with whom I am well pleased, the Son of God whom I have made my king and given to whom I have given the nations, with Jesus, my son, servant, the king, I am well pleased. What is God saying about Jesus? He is saying that he is the rightful descendant of David, who inherits David's throne, who has come as God's king, and he has come to act for and on behalf of the people of God. How goes the king? Goes the people. How obedient or disobedient he is. On that rests your destiny and mine. It is from this kind of raw biblical theological material, as well as the explicit texts of the New Testament, that we derive this whole idea that not only is it my sin that is credited to Jesus so that he dies in my place, but it's from this raw material that we learn that what Jesus does in terms of his obedience, that is credited to me. It is imputed to me. He acts for his people. So the very first thing he does after that inauguration at his baptism is to go out into the desert to defeat the devil on behalf of his people and to destroy the works of the devil, the enemies of God, on behalf of his people. So that's why this, this chapter is so crucial in the flow of the Bible story. Now what's in the chapter? Well, in this section, what's in it is David's prayer of gratitude. And in that prayer, David rejoices as God's king in God's grace. You want to know about that? You need to, need to get last week's sermon because it's there. I'm not repeating myself here because then I'd have to repeat myself again next time. And we, this would be still standing on the promises of God until there are so many stills that we, we can make a whiskey factory out of it. No. So David, as God's king, rejoices in God's grace. And you can see, a, by the way, a great contrast between King Saul, Israel's first king, and King David. Because when God said he wasn't going to give Saul something, all Saul could think to do was to try to negotiate a better deal for himself from God. But when God comes to David and denies him something, David wanted to build a temple for God and God denied him that, David doesn't try to negotiate anything for himself. He comes and he prays this prayer of gratitude for the grace of God. He says, God, who am I that you should give me anything? Who am I that you should bless me with anything? Who am I that I deserve anything? Anything you give me, anything, no matter how great or small, is all due to your amazing grace. Well, that was last week's sermon in a nutshell. You were saying, if you'd said it that short last week, it would have been great. But you didn't. Find out why by listening in. But let's look to the second point, verses 23 and 24. David, not only as God's king, rejoices in God's grace... But David, as God's king, identifies with God's people. I want you to go back to verse 18 for a moment. Look at this. King David went in and sat before the Lord. That's a remarkable phrase, and I'll tell you why. That phrase, before the Lord, back in chapter 6, in verse 14 and verse 17, means to go before the ark, the ark of the covenant, which is the kind of visible representation of God's throne on earth. David goes in. He goes into the tent where the Ark of the Covenant is. 
And what we're learning here is this is an unusual thing. Normally only priests were allowed into the ark, where the, the ark was. Normally anybody else was not allowed. King Saul, for example, had transgressed, he had acted over his pay grade and had been judged for it. But here is King David, and he has access right into the, 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 that, that, that object that is symbolic of the inward, inner presence of God himself. David is able to go right in there. What qualifies him to go in there? What qualifies him is this. He has been adopted as a son of God. And on the basis of being a son of God, he has free access into the presence of God. An access denied to everybody else except a priest. In other words, David is a priest king. We're going to learn that not only is he a priest king, he's also a prophet king. He, he, he kind of combines prophethood, kingship, and priesthood. He is a priest king, like Moses was a priest leader who went into the temp, tent of meeting outside the camp and prayed for Israel. David is like Moses in this respect. And he, is, he, he represents the people before God. He has access to God, which was denied all subsequent kings. And the great thing about this picture of David going in here and sitting is that it is a sign of the future. This is what the future is going to look like. Great David's greater son, the son of God from heaven, will penetrate behind the curtain into the heavenly sanctuary, into the heavenly tent. He'll go right into the very presence of God for his people. Great David's greater son will go in there. And what will he do? He'll do what David does here. You notice what it says, verse 18. David went in and sat before the Lord. You say, well, that's what we're doing in this building. Today we're sitting. But let me tell you, that was not usual. This is a very unusual thing. It needs to be explained. It is inexplicable as it stands alone. The priests never sat. There were no chairs in the tabernacle or in the temple. No one dared sit. Why dared they not sit? It was because the work never ended. During my summers as a college student, undergrad student, I used to work normally in a hospital as an assistant to the nurses. That was, that was a great job. And uh, I remember it with great fondness. One, one summer, however, one summer, I was too late in applying for my normal job and it was filled. So I had to look around for any, any kind of work. And, uh, and I knew I was going to be a minister one day, so I knew I would need a sermon illustration somewhere, and that's why I took the job that I took. By the way, everything you do as a minister, you do so you have a sermon illustration. Did you know that? It's true. And uh, so I took this job in, in a, in a brick-making factory. Friends, if you're looking for a career, I do not advise this job. You basically, your day was spent in front of a machine that spewed out newly formed bricks. They were squishy. As it, they came out, you had to lift them, put them on a pallet, 
And then one of your friends would push the pallet into the, into the furnace, which was over 1500 degrees Fahrenheit. It's really it's hot in there. And, and then come back and so forth. So these, this machine never stopped. We went in half hour shifts. So you were either standing at the machine or you were pushing the pallet with all the things on it. It's very hard work, by the way. It was muscle building stuff. You stood at this machine, they spewed out. I mean, if you, if you so much, seriously, I'm going at the rhythm that this was. You know, this is the way it went. All day, if you did this, they just kept coming, and at the end, <laughs> seriously, they would pile up around your feet. It just never ended. Why did I tell you that story? It's because in the Bible, what it says about priests is, that's all they did. It was constant, ongoing work. They never sat before God because the work never ended. It never ended. There was no end to it. Day and night, day and night, it was the same kind of thing. Year in, year out, year in, year out, the machine of sacrifice never stopped because the sacrifices never worked. And only when the final sacrifice was made by the final priest-king as he offered up himself to God as the sacrifice of atonement, only then, for the first time ever, did the sacrificial system end and the king sat down on the throne of God. Here when we see David going in before God and sitting down, we're seeing someone conscious that his role and his position as the Son of God and King of Israel is such that he can sit in the presence of God. And I want you to know, notice what is on his mind. Here we go to verse 23. On his mind are the people. He is conscious as he goes in and sits before God that it is not just what God has done for him, which is what we looked at last time, but the fact that he is there as the representative of the people of God. He uses that expression uh, three times, the idea of God's people. And he describes them, who is like your people, Israel. The one nation, that is the one elect nation out of all the nations of the world, the one elect nation whom you went to redeem. Do you see what he's doing? He's identifying himself as God's king with God's people. He's underlying the preciousness of these people. He's come to represent them. He's come to rule them. But he understands the preciousness of these people. The people of God. Because the covenant with David, you see, was a covenant for the glory of God and for the sake of Israel, the people of God. It's always ever for the people. As a priest king, David was in a key mediatorial, that's the theological word, mediatorial relationship between God and the people. He was the mediator, the go-between, the representative between God and the people. And you see what he says about the people. He says they've been redeemed by God. Who is like your people Israel, the one nation on earth whom God went to redeem to be his people. I love this language. You need to understand this language is of God on the go. And there's a sense, of course, in which God is never on the go because God is everywhere. He doesn't need to go anywhere because there is nowhere where he isn't. At all times, God is everywhere. Because there's just absolutely nowhere where God isn't. But he's giving the people a sign. 
The language that he uses gives a signal to his people. He went down to Egypt. God didn't have to go down to Egypt. He was already in Egypt. He was in Egypt when he was in Israel. When he was in America, when he was in China, whatever. Whatever he is, he's always there. But you see what he's teaching his people? He went down to Egypt to redeem them. He marched in Egypt with his people, overthrew her enemies, and marched out with his people. And during the 40, days of, 40 years of their wandering, he was with them. He gave them the sign of being with them. He gave them a pillar of cloud by day, of fire by night, so that they saw that wherever they went, he went. Wherever they parked, he parked. Wherever they slept, he slept. He was there with them throughout their whole pilgrimage. He never left them, never left them, not once. He had redeemed them. And he possessed them as his people. My uncle was a Presbyterian minister and he used to have a lot of children's talk, some of which I stole. And uh, one of them was about Wee Johnny. Wee Johnny had made himself a little wooden boat and he used to sail it happily on the pond in the local park one day he take it, took it down to the ocean and he put it, well we don't have oceans there, we have sea. Sea is smaller than an ocean but it, kind of, it does the same thing, it's water in it. And he put it on the sea and uh, he thought it was a nice calm day uh, but it wasn't because it got a bit choppy and he lost his boat. Jo we Johnny was disconsolate. And a few months later as he's walking through the little village where he lived, he was passing a shop that he never ever looked in. It was for old people. You know, it was kind of bric-a-brac and stuff like that. And things that you would, uh, a boy wouldn't be interested in. But as he walked past, something caught his eye. Out the peripheral vision of his eye, he saw something. He looked. And there in the window of the shop was his own little boat. He went in and told the person it was his boat. He said, too bad. It's for sale. We Johnny went home. He emptied his piggy bank. He went down. He paid the money, he got his boat, and as he left the shop, he was heard to say, You are twice mine. I made you, and I bought you, and you're all mine. And there's a sense in which you see, this is precisely what God has done for you and me. He made us, made us in his own image, made us in his likeness. But in Christ, he has bought us. He has paid an incredible price for us. It is the precious blood of the Lord Jesus that was shed on the cross to purchase us, to purchase men and women for God. He has made us. He has bought us and we are His possession. His possession. Redeemed by God. Kept by God. Do you notice what he says about Israel? Just as God had said to David that his throne would be established and would last forever, so God established Israel and would keep her forever. Israel may lose the land, and they did, because he punished their idolatry, but he will not forget them. He will not forget them. And he is appointing, God is appointing, this Davidic dynasty as God's provision for the forever future of his people. The D Davidic dynasty is absolutely crucial for God's purposes for the future of his own people. That's absolutely crucial to our understanding. 
And that's why when you get to the New Testament and the Lord Jesus comes onto the scene, he uses the language of the kingship of Israel. He uses the language of the shepherd king and applies it to himself. And he's saying to Israel when he says, I am the good shepherd, he's saying, I'm the king you've been expecting. I'm the king like David. I'm the shepherd king. Unlike these other guys who've come along, these outlaws who've come along and have occupied the office and have feathered their own nest and looked out for number one and have ignored or used or abused the flock of God, I am the good shepherd who lays down his life for the sheep. And I'll tell you this, I will not lose one of them. Not one of them. Nobody can pluck them out of my father's hand. Because there is nothing greater to my father than his people. Nothing more precious to my father than his people. And I'll preserve them. David belonged to people who had been redeemed by God, were being kept by God, and, would, and were blessed by God. Do you see this again? Verse 24. You established for yourself and your people Israel to be your people forever, and you, O Lord, became their God. This is language echoing the marriage formula that we use, and it's taken originally from Exodus 6, verse 7. God says, I shall take you for my own people, and I shall be your God. Do you see what he's saying? He's saying, I've chosen you, I've redeemed you, I'm keeping you. And I'm giving myself to you. You see, what is the ultimate inheritance that God gives his people? Ultimately, what God gives his people is himself. Himself. That is what's so remarkable about this great thing. It is that the eternal God, who fills the universe with his glory, chooses people like you and me and makes promises, like the promises he made to David, makes these great, exceedingly great and precious promises to us. And supremely what he does is gives us himself to be his forever. Now I find echoes in the prayer of David here. I find echoes with the prayer of David's greater son, Jesus. Hours before his arrest, trial, crucifixion, death, he goes to his father, and what's on his, what's on his mind? You can read it in John 17. What's on his mind? John, John's Gospel has these two great expressions used twice in it about his own. Chapter 1, he came to his own, and his own rejected him. Chapter 13, Having loved his own who were in the world, he showed them the extent of his love. So he comes to Israel, the nation, and they reject it. But there's an elect according to the purpose of grace within Israel, and Israel within Israel, his own. And he shows them the full extent of his love. And in chapter 17, he brings them before the Father, and he says to the Father, I manifested your name to them, those that you gave me. They were yours. You gave them to me. I've kept them. I've lost none of them. Not one of them. I've guarded them. And I pray that they would be with me where I am. That they would see me in my glory. That they would see you as I see you. That they would share. They would share the love that you, Father, have for me, your Son. And the love that I have yours as your Son for you, my Father. I pray that those people, those people, 
sitting at the corner of 17th and Spruce, those people would share my glory. Possessing God is identifying with the people of God. And then, verses 25 to 29, David stands upon God's word. Because this is a prayer, isn't it? This is David going to God in prayer. And you can see how he begins. Confirm forever the word. You see, the promises of God don't make David lazy. They don't make him indolent. The promises of God don't make him a fanatic. Like those fanatics Calvin talks about. People who don't pray because they're convinced God knows already, therefore you don't need to pray. No. David knows enough about God and he knows enough about the promises of God to stand on those promises. Literally, the Hebrew begins like this. The word which you have spoken, cause it to stand forever. He's amazed that God should reveal this great future for him. He is amazed at what God is going to do. And do you see how he comes boldly to God, calling on God to keep the promises that he has made, reminding God, reminding God of his own words. This is what we do in prayer. That's why in your personal devotions and in public worship, the two things go hand in hand. First there is the word of God and then our prayer. We shouldn't technically open in prayer. We should only pray after God has spoken because our prayers are our response to God speaking to us. So we hear him. It's a conversation, isn't it? We hear him. We reflect on what he's saying. And then what we should really do in prayer is we should speak back to God in the language and in the words that he has given to us to speak. Because what God does is he raises the subject. Very often, you know, the way we pray is we ignore, we ignore what God's been talking about. It's like having one of these kind of conversations with people, you know, where they're talking about one thing and you want to talk about something else. And we get on a whole lot better in our prayer life if we just talk back to God about the things God was talking to us about. David does that. God had come with these promises. He goes back to God and he says, I know some things about you. He says, he uses this phrase, Lord God, Sovereign Lord, verse 25, 26, 29. He uses that three times. Twice he calls God the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel. And it's as if he's, he's using these titles of God because he's saying to God, I'm not going to let you be anything other than what you've revealed yourself to me to be. You, this is the kind of God you are. And he pushes the envelope. He pushes the dynastic promise as far as it goes. He uses this word God used forever. He uses it four times. You said forever. You said forever. You said forever. You said forever. Make it last forever. He speaks the promises of God back to God. Because the essence of faith is what? It is believing God. That when God makes a promise or God gives an invitation, He means it. I remember once Christy and I set out in the car to go over to visit some people who were friends of ours, where being the operative word I'm kidding 
uh, because they had invited us for dinner. We arrived at the door, rang the doorbell. I remember he came, my friend came to the, the door, he looked, he looked at us and he said, Liam, Christy, really, come on in. So we went in and we sat and we chatted and we talked. And soon we became aware, of course, that he had absolutely no memory of asking us to come to dinner. And that even if we had stirred up that memory, he had certainly not said anything to his wife about us coming to dinner. And eventually we excused ourselves and we got out of there and starved. God doesn't forget his invitations. God doesn't forget his promises. And when we pray, we can go to him and we can remind him of what he has said. He will never leave us or forsake us. He will never let us go. We come and we pour our hearts. This is the kind of God that we have. And you see in verse 26, the reason, the purpose behind his prayer is that God's name would be magnified. It's very interesting. David is basically doing two things. The reason he prays is, one, that God's name and fame would be magnified. And the other is that God's kingdom that he had promised would come. Do you recognize those? You find them in the Lord's Prayer. That God's name would be hallowed and that God's kingdom would come. Those are the great motives of Christian action, Christian prayer in the world. As we come to God, we want God's name and fame to be magnified to the whole world. And we want God's kingdom to come. We want it to come in that provisional way in which it comes today, in which more and more men and women, boys and girls, are brought into the lordship, under the lordship of King Jesus. We want that kingdom to come in that provisional way in which more nations and peoples and language groups are coming into a relationship with Christ Jesus. But we want it to come in that final sense, when the sky is torn open, when King Jesus descends from heaven in all the power and majesty that is his, when he comes in power and glory to take the kingdom and to reign, we long for that day when the kingdom of this world becomes the kingdom of our God and of his Christ, and he shall reign forever and ever. We long for that. Like David, we pray, your kingdom come. We do this, we pray these way, this way. Because we are convinced as David is convinced that God is great, that God is the one and only, that God's greatness sets him apart from everything and everyone. Verse 21, this great thing that God is doing. Verse 22, this great sovereign Lord. Verse 23, these great wonders. How great the Lord's name is, verse 26. How great deeds he has made known to his servants. No one is like the Lord. Are you convinced of that? Louis XIV of France was the great sun king of France whose influence is seen in the architecture of Paris. He was a control freak, as many of the kings were, and he had, uh, he had uh, already prepared his funeral arrangements, and he had arranged that the great cathedral of Notre Dame would be darkened at his funeral except for one candle burning on top of his casket. The great and the good of France were gathered. The cathedral was darkened 
and the one candle burned until the time came for the court preacher to rise and give the funeral oration. Before he started, he strode over to the casket of the king and he snuffed out the candle and he began his funeral oration with these words. Only God is great. Only God is great. And in days of superficiality and in days when we are satisfied with the sentimental and the sloppy and the insignificant, we as God's people need to be reminded that the grace of God is such and the work of God in history is such that only God is great. Let's pray together. Father, we pray for a, a sense, an understanding, an experience of your greatness. It isn't the building we're in that impresses it upon, upon us. Ultimately, it is who you are, God who has chosen, redeemed, kept, blessed, his people. And the God who has acted in one man, our David, our Israel, our Adam, our Christ, our Savior, to ensure that our standing before you today is secure because of his obedience and his blood. We pray that you would fill us with all joy in believing and much boldness in prayer, and much confidence in you. In his strong name we pray.